0: powerful way to launch a guest into a sermon. Thank you so much. (laughs) I think I could speak anything at this point and feel confident in it. Um, I want to take this moment to say thank you to all of you for so graciously welcoming me, a stranger, into your midst. And um, just as a brief way of introducing myself beyond what was already spoken, Kathy and I met while we were at Phillips together in seminary classes and um, found a bond um, that we shared over children and approaches to life and many other ways. And so I have a great appreciation for your minister and am grateful for her invitation invitation to be with you today so if you will let us begin then um, with this piece of our service there are many ways to approach the topic of common unity that i have brought here today we might focus our efforts by exploring what we hold in common which may be many things within this room Or perhaps we'd want to know how we would define when unity is achieved. But I prefer more concrete approaches. In fact, I was telling Kathy um, yesterday that I'm very um, practical in my theology and my approach to living that out in, in the world. And so you know, I'm looking for something that leads us to an outcome that we can feel and that we can taste and that we can smell. So, since I've been given an opportunity this morning to visit with you about my work with food and food justice, it seems the perfect conduit for our exploration today. After all, food is tangible. Food delights the taste buds, and it offers extraordinary aromas, doesn't it, for our pleasure. Our senses just ignite when we smell food, and memories um, come to mind of days past, Beginning with the most basic level, food is something that we all hold in common, for everybody in this room eats, I assume, and everybody must eat or we would die. But that sensual picture that I just described of food loses some of its effectiveness when we stop to recall that there is no guaranteed right to food, no basic human right to food in our country. And many people go hungry every day. Food also has a power to unite us in mysterious yet powerful ways, but as recent news events have shown us, and boy, haven't they been overwhelming, we are more isolated and divided than ever, it would seem, and the tension that this creates is growing deeper and wider. Our politics, religion, race, even nationality deceive us into this rhetoric and and debate that belies our common ground. So while food is a language that we do all speak, we could say that we're on a much different wavelength about who gets to eat and when and who is invited to the table and how. Now, a message that begins with comments of food scarcity, as I have done, and human rights surrounding food or the lack thereof, needs facts and statistics for supporting evidence. If we don't already know, we should, that one in four children in Oklahoma do not know where their next meal will come from. One in four. One in seven adults are in the same position. Low incomes, retirement pensions, emergency life situations force hard choices between repairing a car that gets us to work if we have a job, catching up on late rent, paying a doctor bill for a sick child, obtaining a life-saving prescription drug, or buying some groceries to put on the shelf for a family. These are the daily experience of those Oklahomans I referenced And while they are largely invisible to us, the struggle is very real. At a local elementary school here in Tulsa that serves marginalized children and their families, one counselor shared this story with me that brings the statistics home. She told of of greeting a second grader each day who came to school early to receive the free breakfast that the school offers to children like him. But when it came time for class to begin after the breakfast, his teacher consistently reported that he was late. And no one understood why until one day they discovered that he came for breakfast each morning in order to pack it up, what he received for himself. He packed it up, put it in his backpack, and ran it home to share with his family. And that caused him to be late coming back to school. That's how real food insecurity is. A librarian in the same neighborhood was discussing with me the high hunger needs of the children who frequent her library during summer breaks. And I've been there at the Kendall Whittier Library. I don't know if any of you have visited, but there are enormous amounts of children and youth who stay in that library during the course of the day in the summer. And she was excited that we were visiting with her about uh, a bread-making event because she said, oh, my goodness, these children are so hungry. If you have that event that would be something that they could eat today at a different elementary school across town on the south side where i used to work children were known to cry at the end of the school year because they knew that their food source their breakfast and their lunch was disappearing with that last day of school for an entire summer and the fear that that produced in those children kept those counselors busy for days on end as the end of the year approached. In a country where economic inequality is growing, poverty is simultaneously rising. In places of deep poverty, food deserts render residents powerless to access good, healthy food as grocery stores are miles away and the transportation systems in our city to get to the store are inadequate, and undependable. On top of that, SNAP benefits are little help because what is frequently received for a family doesn't last a full month. It's only intended to serve a certain portion. And the limited buying power of these resources forces grocery shoppers to opt for what? The cheapest choice on the shelf rather than the most nutritious, trying to stretch those food dollars. So consider with me the cost differential between a gallon of milk and a package of Kool Aid. Both serve as beverages, but the nutritional difference is without comparison, we know that. But if you're trying to stretch your food dollars every day, nutrition's going to take a secondary role. I don't know if any of you have seen the film A Place at the Table, but um, they demonstrated soundly in that film that food banks, food pantries, soup kitchens, feeding programs also receive and distribute the most cost-effective foods in order to stretch the dollars to try to cover more of their patrons. But the outcome is that when diners consistently have meals of processed, high-calorie foods rather than fruits and vegetables and dairy products that represent a balanced diet, obesity rates, heart disease, depression factors soar. Now, for those of us who are income secure, this seems a little difficult to imagine, doesn't it? For us, it's really food is about where are we going to lunch today? What are we hungry for? We go to the grocery store and buy mounds of groceries or abundantly plated meals at our favorite restaurants, only to waste food by the tons. And it's been measured in the United States that there is a significant amount of food waste going on. We throw out spoiled produce. I'm guilty of that. I do it every week. Don't get it all eaten. And those leftover containers that go into the refrigerator, sometimes those don't get eaten either. So we throw them out. And then we repeat and repeat and repeat. We don't give a lot of thought to the fact that food is scarce feels readily available to us is the air that surrounds us. Now, beyond the issue of food access that impacts our health and well-being is the concept of how we treat the earth, the source of our food, and those who supply the food to us, all of which impacts us in numerous ways. On the Institute for Agricultural and Trade Policy website, blogger Andrew Ronallo reminds us of these kind of deficits. He says... From the soil and water that feeds our crops, to the waiters and waitresses that service our lunch, to the seeming myriad choices we have at the grocery store about what we eat, justice and health for ourselves, our farmers, workers, and the environment is drastically in short supply. Moving a step further to the environmental aspect even deeper, political scientists Janet Flamang, who's the author of a book called A Taste for Civilization, points out that changes in the way we prepare and consume food have significant social and political costs to us. Grazing and snacking instead of sitting down for leisurely meals. Watching television during mealtimes instead of conversing. Viewing food as fuel rather than sustenance. Discarding family recipes in food ways, and ultimately denying that eating has social and political dimensions. Flamang's point is that we've lost the practices of sitting at a table with others and have consequently forgotten how to be community. We don't practice those things that naturally occur around a table, sharing, uh, telling stories, Passing food to one another, making sure there's a place set for everyone who's hungry. We don't practice those widely in our culture anymore. Joy Harjo, in the work that I read before, Perhaps the World Ends Here, is a wonderful reminder of the capacity of the common table to form us into human beings. It's the place, she says, where life begins and ends. At the table, we learn how to be women, we learn how to be men. We experience the tensions of living in community. You remember the line about wars begin at the table? How many arguments can you think of that maybe started at a dinner table? But we come back, and we're bound together by that experience of table. We feast on all that life has to offer, and we repeat it daily. Or we ought, perhaps, to do that. We are challenged by the words also of Wendell Berry, and that community is something that we must do all the time. It's not something that we have. We, you know, in, in our worshiping communities or our faith communities or religious communities, we think of them as our community and something that we have. But if we didn't all invest and do the work of community, they would not exist. And then from that more ancient perspective, the Christian text that I read you from Luke John Dominic Crossan, a noted Jesus scholar, reminds us that free healing and common eating practices were at the core of Jesus' way. Because the ancient banquet practices were a microcosm of all the barriers at large for the poor and oppressed in that society, Jesus chose to turn it upside down and practice and teach through parables such as the one that we read today, the idea of open commensality. Commensality is an egalitarian approach to dining, meaning that the table is open to everyone, not just those with wealth and influence. He he did this and demonstrated it through eating with slave and free, male and female, sinner and pious, sick and healthy. And his table conversations occurred with all those who never would have been invited or included in the dining venues. He was trying to demonstrate a reversal of the hierarchy of the culture that so pervasively existed in that day. According to Crossan, miracle and parable, healing and eating were calculated to force individuals, force them, into unmediated physical and spiritual contact with God and one another, turning the table perhaps, if you will, upside down, brings people together that would not normally rub elbows, share stories, any of that. From Flamang with a call to civilization around the table to Harjo's words that convey the essence of life around a table to Barry, who calls us into accountability regarding doing community, and Jesus, who teaches us to dine with those on the margins, we hear a compelling case for gathering around food finding our common unity, sitting down to dine with others, creating space in our lives for the work and workings of food and table. You heard the term food justice in my introduction today, and that is not a term that is widely known by many. Um, But the food justice movement is a conduit to living into these kind of venues that we've been exploring It's a practice that takes the imbalance between the food insecure and those who are not into account and sets up goals and principles that strive to change the inequity. Like its big sister social justice, with which most of us are familiar with, food justice is centered on the idea that everyone should have enough to thrive. And it's based on the concepts of access, equity, rights, and participation. Ideally, everyone should have access to fresh, healthy food that powers our minds and our bodies and our spirits to live more fully. And everyone should have enough food and the culturally appropriate kinds of food that support the workings of their own families and community. All people all people, should have the declared human right to food because everyone has to eat or die. And each person should have opportunities to participate in the food system in ways that works best for them, rather than what someone else determines they should have or what is appropriate to give them. It's this inviting, dining, conversing, working together that Stone Soup Community Venture is offering through our work to establish food justice projects. You've heard the uh, folk tale, Stone Soup, many of you, I assume. If you have not heard it, it's at its basic level a story of hunger and a village that believes it can do nothing about it. People are isolated behind their doors saying, we have very little food we can't share until a visitor comes. And he draws them out from behind their closed doors into the village center where together they discover that a carrot or a potato or... Rutabaga, whatever vegetable they might have had, just one of, when they combined all of those vegetables, they found out that they were stronger than they were individually and that they could address their food insecurity in their vi- uh, village. And by the end of the story, they're celebrating together and saying, hey, look at what we've done. <clears throat> at its richest point, this is the story of the ways that food brings us together into community and how we are greater together than we are apart. Excuse me just a moment. When we look at all the problems presented by food injustices, all of the ways that we have kept to ourselves, abandoned our relationships with the earth, the food we eat, and the people um, that gather around through community, We find that they can nurture us into healing if we give them a chance. So at Stone Soup, we look at the strengths of the community just like the folktale does, and tries to find solutions by building on those strengths. Our most well-known program is called Tulsa's Table, and I hope some of you have heard of us already. It's a pay what you can model of dining that provides access to fresh, healthy, whole food to anyone regardless of how they can contribute or donate. The point is that everyone has something to offer. Whether you have cash or time or talent, they are of equal value to us at Tulsa's Table. And like the Stone Soup story, when we offer our lunches to the community, we find that each person from the community has something to contribute that makes it all work. Some people donate at the suggested price, Others do that and pay it forward. And others offer their time in volunteerism in exchange for a meal. All of these contributions help ensure that everyone has something nutritious and sustaining to eat if they need it. And because so many different walks of life come through our doors, community is knit together in new ways as people engage in conversations around the large community tables that we set up and they sit with a leisurely lunch conversing enjoying the experience of food with flowers on the table and tablecloths on the table and music filling the air and in that in that location at that point in time the fullness of humanity is experienced it's a physical connection a place that facilitates an experience of connectivity and beauty that leaves one knowing that food is indeed sustaining in many ways, physical and spiritual. And there are other ways that community is invited into this mix. Beyond those who come to volunteer in exchange for a meal, we invite civic groups and religious groups and um, social groups to come in as teams to help us make the cafe happen because we don't have a fixed location for ourselves we 're housed in a local church at Fifteenth and Harvard, and it takes a lot of person power to come in and set up the tables and and then lay the tables prepared for the guests and serve the food and serve the beverages. So we invite groups to come in and participate with us from greeters to servers set up to breakdown of each event we look to the community to participate in the good work of making our lunches happen. Beyond this, beyond Tulsa's Table, we're now beginning to offer internships through the cafe, where youth from Job Corps and street school can come in and have internship experiences that empower them and remind them of their worth as they learn job skills and life skills in this learning laboratory of our cafe. They will begin experiencing every station of the operation and will be introduced not only to the workings of the cafe, but will also come to understand their own potential or proclivity for a certain aspect of it through discovering all the academic and vocational avenues that these stations require. Under the banner of another food justice project we're beginning called Let Us, a play on the word Let Us, a program designed to reduce food waste by accepting donations of excess fresh produce from local gardeners, these same youth will have an opportunity to work under the mentored leadership of older adults in the kitchen who remember what it's like to can and preserve foods. And together, our dream is that they will produce a food product with these excess fruits and vegetables that have been donated that can go out and be sold into the community as a way of sustaining that program and as a way of lifting up how at-risk youth and older adults really do have something in common. We also offer mobile garden and kitchen demonstrations and teach adults and children about gardening in ways that empowers them to grow and prepare and enjoy fresh, healthy foods in economical ways a manner of helping them stretch those food dollars that we discussed were so sparse earlier. It's been written that we can look at food justice in this way, as a cross-class multicultural movement that engages in a wide variety of work on local, regional, national, and global levels. Food justice projects are open to anyone, and that's the beauty of it. We can all participate. And individuals can become involved on a variety of levels, depending on your time and your talent and your interest. You can join a boycott. If if food servers aren't being paid well, don't receive a living wage, we can boycott that. You can buy your produce at the farmer's market, reconnecting with those local farmers who rely on local shoppers for their living. We can volunteer at an urban garden. Um, we're beginning to do those with Stone Soup. You may know of others in the community. Or you can join us. We are on the journey. We invite you to come along and work with us for a common unity through food. There is enough to be addressed, enough need to be addressed, as we discussed earlier. The statistics bear that out. There is enough community to be built based on how fragmented and isolated our lives have become. There is enough space for your hands and your feet to contribute to the vision. As the poet Cyrus Cassell so eloquently wrote, Oh, grant us strength to fashion a table where each of us has a name. This is my prayer as I leave you today, that your name and mine will be known at a community table where everyone is welcome where all are fed and none go away hungry. May it be so.